Well, good morning. Welcome to First Free Church. My name is Nick Parker. I'm one of the pastors here. As Adam said, we're on a short break from our series that we've been going through this year on the book of Acts. We had a great guest speaker last weekend. Uh, Carlton Harris did a great job. If you weren't here to watch that message, I would encourage you to go back and look at it. And then this week and next, we're going with the theme of No Other King, which today, Palm Sunday, is a fitting beginning. Now, some of you may be asking, well, what exactly is Palm Sunday? Well, this is a day that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry as he rode into Jerusalem that last time. And it begins what is often referred to as Holy Week or Passion Week. So the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then later this week, we'll remember his crucifixion, him taking on the punishment for our sins and his death on the cross in our place on Good Friday. And then, of course, Resurrection Day on Sunday, which is really the crux of our faith. You know, this is a significant week for disciples of Jesus. But, you know, I've often wondered why it seems like the biggest holiday for us is actually Christmas, you know, remembering Jesus' birth. My daughter and I actually had a conversation about this last week on the way home. You know, it's sort of a chicken or the egg thing, right? And she said, Daddy, didn't Jesus first have to be born in order to go to the cross and die for us? Well, yes, of course. Um, but there were a few that claimed to be a Messiah and weren't. They're still in their graves, whereas Jesus is not, right? And so, and don't get me wrong, I love the Christmas season as much as anybody else, right? There's so much to celebrate. There's so much fun with that. There's this huge buildup. I mean, Christmas anymore starts pretty much the day after Halloween, if even that late, right? And I know that much of this celebration really has nothing to do with Jesus. The larger culture, non-Christians, everybody really likes to celebrate Christmas. But what about Easter? It seems like it gets a little bit left behind. We don't have the same big buildup. It doesn't start, say, the day after President's Day with this big buildup to, to this season, now, maybe some of you have participated in Lent, which is 40 days of fasting and prayer to prepare your hearts to think more deeply about Jesus this week. So, okay, where am I going with this? Well, Palm Sunday always reminds me of the very first church that I attended as an adult. So I came to Christ a little bit later. I was 28. I'd been away from church for a long time. And I'll never forget that first Palm Sunday and Easter season at the church where I was because there was this huge celebration there was this big procession of, I think, pastors and elders, and they took these big flags and walked around the back of the sanctuary and then down the center aisle as a traditional hymn was playing. And now, I'd never experienced anything like this as a kid. I mean, these were huge flags, and they said things like, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and they came and they put them on each side of the stage for that week through the next week. And now, as an adult, you know, coming back to church, I'd been away for a while, two thoughts really hit my mind that morning. First of all, if I can be honest, this is weird. What's going on here, right? But also it really struck me that there must be something significant being celebrated here today. And you know, that wasn't a church tradition that did things like that a lot. In fact, it's the same church I just served at before uh, coming here to First Free. And by the time I was on staff there, we'd, we didn't do that anymore. So I'm not sure when they got rid of that big celebration. But anyway, that's something that has just stuck with me. And so when I think about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, that's the image that comes to mind for me. And I think it helps me see what this might have been like, this big celebration as Jesus rides into Jerusalem this last time. So let's pray and then we'll dive into God's word to find more about this triumphal entry. Father God, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to just gather together in your house and hear from your word, gather together with your people. And particularly this week, as we look forward to this Holy Week, this Passion Week, and remember what Jesus did for us. Lord, help us to think deeply about Jesus this week. Help us to spend some time this morning um, really contemplating what he did for us. And 
Lord, I just pray that you would give me the words to say and give us all ears to hear from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the triumphal entry is one of just a few accounts that occurs in all four gospels, so it really was a significant event. You know, this morning we'll be spending time in Matthew chapter 21, if you wanna get your Bibles out to there. If you're reading along in our Back Together reading plan, you'll actually read Mark's account in chapter 11 this week. So let's take a look right now at Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments out on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from trees and spread them out on the road. And Jesus was at the center of the procession, and the people all around were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so what's going on here? So there are a couple little rabbit trails you can actually go down with the first few verses, like how did Jesus know there'd be these donkeys in this town that he would be able to use? You know, was this a display of his omniscience or were the owners of this donkey maybe um, followers of his that he had arranged this with ahead of time, much like he will later in the week arrange an upper room for them to go and have the Passover dinner, which becomes the Last Supper just a short time later? And you know, there are people with uh, scholars on opinions on both sides of this, but frankly, I don't think it really matters because we know both are true, right? Jesus is omniscient and he has friends. So the important part, thank you, one laugh. Um, <laughs> the important part of this first section is actually Jesus's fulfillment of prophecy and his intentionality in doing so. In fact, one commentary I read stated that this is the only time that Jesus is ever recording as having traveled other than on foot. And so it can only be a deliberate gesture. And both Matthew and John's accounts tell us that this riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was a specific fulfillment of scripture from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. And yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, this scripture was understood to be a messianic prophecy, which Jesus obviously would have known. And so he's intentionally fulfilling this in a way that the people should not miss. And the people do seem to understand. Verses eight and nine say that most of the crowd spread their garments out on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. Jesus was at the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Now the crowd laying their garments on the road ahead of him symbolized submission to an authority or placing themselves at Jesus' feet. This was something that was done for a king. And in fact, we see this, uh, something very similar in Israel's past. In 2 Kings 9, it says, Jehu told them, he said to me, this is what the Lord says, I have anointed you to be king over Israel. And then they quickly spread out their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the ram's horn and said, Jehu is king. 
And so the crowd here appears to be recognizing Jesus as the king of Israel. And in fact, John's account tells us as much. John 12, 13 says, they took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And we see here also in John's account why we call this Palm Sunday. He specifies that it was palm branches that they were laying on the road. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with this triumphal entry story, you might notice that there's a word here that seems to be missing in this New Living Translation. Many other translations say that the crowds went before him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna simply means to, to save us or save now. And it's an exaltation or a, an acclamation that we've seen in Israel's past as well. From Psalm 118, which says, please, Lord, please save us or Hosanna. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. And this title that the crowd is using of son of David was a common messianic title. And so the crowd appears to recognize Jesus not only as the king of Israel, but also as the promised Messiah. And now I say appears because as I was preparing for this message, there was a note in my NLT study Bible that really stood out to me and made me think. It says that this day, Palm Sunday, should remind us to guard against superficial acclaim for Christ. Superficial acclaim. You know, this is alluding to a couple of different things. One, it noted that there might have been some people in this Hosanna crowd who just a few days later were gonna be in that crucify crowd. Now, this is a contested view with divergent opinions here. You know, there are some who believe that, no, those were totally separate groups, totally separate crowds altogether. Uh, but verse eight that says many in the crowd can also be translated to very great crowd. So this was likely a, a big group here, particularly as Jesus approached the city. It said all of Jerusalem was in an uproar, right? And Jerusalem could swell to estimates as high as two million people for the Passover. But even amongst Jesus' closest followers, you know, think about what happens with the 12 this week. They all desert him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? Peter later denies him. And as far as we know, only John showed up to the cross. And Judas, he not only deserts him, he turns him over to the authorities. He sells him for 30 pieces of silver. And earlier in Jesus' ministry, after what some of his followers called a hard teaching, we're told in John chapter 6, verse 66, well, that's an ominous verse reference, isn't it? That at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. So keep in mind, Jesus had many more disciples than just the 12. He was often followed by crowds. And we know how fickle crowds can be. And unfortunately, Jesus was all too familiar with people turning their back on him. And so it was possible that there were some from this Hosanna crowd who were just a few days later shouting, crucify. And so their acclaim here at the triumphal entry is totally superficial. But you know, this maybe um, situation aside, a more clear case of superficial acclaim lies within the people's view of Jesus as King and Messiah. Because who they were looking for and what they hoped he would do was actually totally different than who Jesus actually is and what he came and actually did. And Mark's account gives us an indication of what the people were really looking for. Mark 11 verse 10 says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so they were looking for their kingdom to be restored, perhaps even to the glory days of David. 
Remember earlier in John's gospel after the feeding of the 5,000, that crowd actually tried to make Jesus king by force. And even soon after Jesus' resurrection, even his closest disciples were asking him, in Acts 1-6 we read that the apostles were with Jesus and they kept on asking him, Lord, is the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And so if that's what the apostles were looking for, this restored kingdom of Israel, then it's likely what his greater group of disciples and some of those fringe followers were looking for. And for sure, this greater crowd of Israelites who maybe had just heard about Jesus or just heard about his power to do miracles, and they're just there to check this guy out. You know, it wasn't very long before this triumphal entry and very nearby that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And John's account tells us that that was the reason so many went out to meet him because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. And so this greater crowd of Israelites is thinking, hey, this guy probably has the power to finally overthrow Rome. So yes, this crowd is shouting, Hosanna, save us, but they weren't talking about their souls. They're talking about their nation, their kingdom. But Jesus wasn't coming to conquer Rome and restore the kingdom of Israel. He was coming to conquer sin and death and restore the people's relationship back to the Father. And he'd already been ushering in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. This crowd didn't realize their greatest enemy wasn't Rome, it was sin. And so while their words were technically right, this praise and acclaim on their lips was technically correct, their understanding of it and perhaps even their hearts were not. Which is really interesting because if they know this scripture from Zechariah 9 that Matthew tells us Jesus is fulfilling, it really stands in humble contrast to this aggressive military political takeover that was somewhat the popular view of what the Messiah might do. And now make no mistake, this is the greatest coronation our world has ever seen. And yet Jesus comes humbly unlike any other coronation. You know, a donkey stands in stark contrast to a war horse or a chariot that other kings might ride into a conquered territory. And in fact, Zechariah 9.10 says that Jesus will get rid of war horses and chariots. So this crowd that likely knew this scripture totally missed that this king of prophecy would be totally different than any other king. Riding in on a donkey was an intentional and significant affirmation of Jesus' character and his purpose. And Jesus recognizes that the people are missing it. At the end of Luke's account of the triumphal entry, we read this in Luke 19. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would recognize the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Now maybe hearing Jesus weep over the city reminds you of earlier when he'd weeped over Jerusalem in Luke 13. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you might hear that and say, hey, that's exactly what they're saying right here at the triumphal entry, right? Yes, but they don't understand the way to peace. Jesus is not coming to overthrow Rome, but he would come and overthrow sin and death, but he would do so humbly. Being arrested by the religious leaders, being tried before the Roman authorities, and surrendering even to death. Now, I don't wanna be too harsh here. You know, some of this may have been just a simple, unintentional misunderstanding. And John 12, 16 does tell us that his disciples didn't understand at this time that this was fulfillment of prophecy. 
But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. And so particularly amongst Jesus' closest followers, they wanted to get this right. But perhaps their eyes just hadn't been opened fully yet. But the fringe followers, the larger crowds of Israelites, they were looking for a different Messiah. And so we've established that much of this acclaim and praise during the triumphal entry was coming from a false or a superficial place. But but so what? What does that mean to us? Well, back to the note that I mentioned that Palm Sunday should remind us to guard against superficial acclaim for Christ. And so we need to look ourselves in the mirror. Are we also looking for a different Jesus? One who will do what we want him to do. Maybe one who will give us comfort or give us success, whether that be political or otherwise. I mean, are we guilty of praising Jesus for the exact same thing that this crowd is? Are we more interested that Jesus would restore our nation than restore souls? Do we acclaim a Jesus who actually is and what he actually did or only praise the Jesus who meets our expectations? And you know, to be honest, I I too often find myself falling into this. I'm much better at praising Jesus when life is going well, when he's meeting my expectations. Whether it be in my marriage or in parenting or, or too often in ministry, You know, when things are going like I want them to go, well, I'm ready to sing his praise. But, you know, life is often hard and ministry is often hard. You know, people don't often cooperate or they're downright mean sometimes. Yes, even church people. Or when my kids aren't cooperating or they're being mean. Or when my wife, you know, I should probably stop right there. Um, (laughs) She's unexpectedly home with a sick kid today. Love you, honey. Um, But, you know, just over a week ago, I unexpectedly on our spring break vacation got to visit the lovely ER in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and have my appendix removed. That wasn't what I expected for a a fun family trip to go like. And I know there are several in this room who are facing much more significant unexpected health problems or relational issues. And when ministry or marriage or parenting or, or life in general is hard or there's hard things going on in the world, you know, sometimes praising Jesus truly it becomes more difficult, like Andrew mentioned earlier. You know, when the things that I'm expecting of Jesus aren't happening, honestly, a lot of times my acclaim then turns into questioning Jesus. Like, well, what are you doing? And it's not that he can't take that. But, but dare I say, sometimes it even goes further to disappointment in Jesus. Yet we should try, strive to be like Job. What did Job say on the worst day of his life? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus is worthy of our praise regardless of our circumstances, right? That is true acclaim, praising him through the ups and downs of life because if we're only praising Jesus when life is going how we want to or on those mountaintop moments, what are we actually praising there? It's not Jesus, it's the mountaintop. And so how do we get beyond the superficial or selfish acclaim? What what does it mean to truly acclaim Jesus? Well, some other words for acclaim are exalt or magnify, glorify, praise. I'm sort of purposely avoiding the word worship here because I think often when we hear the word worship, we think of what happened earlier in the service when we're singing worship songs, which that is, of course, worship, but it's just a part of the picture. You know, this entire Sunday morning service, gathering together in Jesus' name, reading his word, hearing from him, that is all worship. And worship should extend beyond Sundays, you know, just this one hour of our lives, We should live a lifestyle of worship. Our entire lives should exalt Jesus. And you know, much like the disciples had a better understanding of what Jesus was doing after the resurrection and after he ascended into glory, we also have the benefit of hindsight. I mean, we have the entirety of scripture right here in our hands. 
We have the whole of Christian history behind us to help us better understand. And so our worship, our acclaim, our exalting of Jesus should come from a, a better, deeper, truer place. And so, so what does that mean to exalt Jesus? You know, we could take an entire sermon series to talk about that. So we'll just scratch the surface over the next 15 minutes or so. But what that word literally means is to set on high, to lift up, to be lofty. And so when we exalt Jesus, we recognize that he is above us. He's above all. And of course, we're not the ones doing the lifting, right? We're just acknowledging a truth that is. When I hear the word exalt, Philippians 2 immediately comes to mind for me. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 says this. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him. The word here is exalted. Some translations say highly exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him that name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we exalt Jesus, we acknowledge that he has that place of highest honor. He's above us, he's above all. He has that name above all names, amen? He holds that place, we read here, because of what he has done. And so we exalt Jesus for what he has done and what he has actually done, not what we hope he will do, Right? Not what we want him to do, like this crowd is praising this hopeful king who will restore their kingdom, but what he has actually done. And so what is that? Well, he humbled himself. He gave up his divine privileges and came to earth as a man, and not into a palace, but into poverty. He walked amongst us as Emmanuel, God with us. He experienced what his creation experiences. He, he got tired, he wept. Hebrews tells us this high priest of ours understands our weakness for he has faced all the same testings. Some translations say he's been tempted as we are yet remained without sin. He taught with authority. The good news was preached to the poor. He performed many miracles. The blind received their sight. The lame walked. Lepers were cleansed. The deaf heard. The mute spoke. Even the dead were raised by Jesus. And as we remember this week, he humbled himself and in obedience to God, he died the criminal's death on the cross in our place. He paid the penalty for my sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He rose from the tomb in victory over sin and death, and now he offers us our own resurrection when we trust in him, and we can spend eternity in heaven with him because of what he has done. We exalt Jesus by praising him for all that he has done. And also, we exalt Jesus for who he is who he truly is. You know, similar to Philippians 2, Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus is far above any other ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ. And so exalting Jesus is acknowledging that he's not just the king of Israel, like this crowd was ready to acknowledge, but he's more than that. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ultimate authority above all. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no other king like him. And, and part of exalting Jesus for who he is also means praising his attributes and his character. 
And when, when I think of that, this clip immediately comes to mind. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. That's so awesome. That's, a, that's an excerpt of a sermon from the 1970s by a Baptist preacher named S.M. Lockridge. If you wanna think deeply about Jesus this week and exalt him, and I encourage you to look that up and listen to it throughout the week. Every time I watch that, it gives me goosebumps and I just wanna lift my hands, don't you? And then I quickly realize what a poor job I do of exalting Jesus. I mean, when people ask me about Jesus, my answer rarely sounds like that. Does yours? 
I mean, when was the last time you even called Jesus my king? Well, if you struggle with exalting Jesus, I encourage you to read through the Psalms. It's a great place to start. Now, I'm part of a couple different life transformation groups here, and along with the Back Together reading plan this year, we've been reading through the Psalms. And I can't tell you how much that has blessed me, how it's added to my prayer life, how it's given me words of acclaim and praise and exaltation for the Lord, and, and particularly through good and bad, you know, through the ups and downs of life. The Psalms are very real and raw. David is very honest with the Lord, and he asks hard questions, even laments at times, and yet he almost always ends in exalting God. Here are just a few of my favorites. Psalm 4610, you likely know the first, ver- or first part of this. Be still and know that I am God. And look how it continues. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 40, verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord be exalted. Psalm 145.1, I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. And Psalm 19, a great uh, psalm to memorize the whole thing, but the very first verse says, the heavens proclare the glory of God and the skies display his craftsmanship. And there are dozens of other scriptures that you could go to to help you with exalting God. And so just open your Bibles, which by the way is another way of exalting Jesus. Read his word, get to know him, who he really is and what he has really done for all of us through his word. And then do what it says, obey your king. You know, that last Psalm 19 makes me think of a really interesting interaction noted only in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, it says, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The ESV says the very stones will cry out. Now, the Pharisees didn't like that the crowd was exalting Jesus. They may not have been getting it exactly right, but the Pharisees didn't think he deserved it at all. They didn't believe he'd come as king and Messiah. And they knew that only God alone was worthy of this type of praise and worship. And interestingly, this was the first time that Jesus accepts public worship. There'd been some smaller, more private moments, but really up to this point, Jesus had generally told people, like those that he healed, to be quiet about it. Even his own disciples, after a couple of major events, after the transfiguration or after Peter declares him to be the Christ, in both instances, he tells them to keep quiet about it. You know, it hadn't yet been time for this. But now, As he rides into Jerusalem this last time, he's proclaiming, yes, I am the king of Israel. And more than that, I'm the king of kings, the Messiah who is worthy of this praise. And so he allows it. You know, another interesting place that we see palm branches is in Revelation chapter seven. It says, after this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne and put their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they sang amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to the Lord our God forever and ever, amen. A vast crowd, too great to count, along with all the angels exalting our Lord with shouts with a great roar. How awesome will that be to experience? 
You know, we are a part of God's creation. We were made to worship. We're made to exalt Jesus. But even if we don't, Jesus will still be exalted. The very stones will cry out. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. A great multitude in heaven will sing his praises. So why not join in? Let's do the same. Amen? Well, before I wrap this up, I wanna ask that same question from the video. Do you know him, this King Jesus? If you don't, if you just kind of heard about him or if you've been keeping Jesus at arm length for a while, then please don't leave here this morning without learning more about this Jesus who's so worthy of our praise. Learn what this week of celebration is all about, who Jesus truly is and what he has done for each one of us. There'll be a prayer team down front after the service who'd be happy to talk to you, pray with you, answer any questions you have about Jesus, or come find me or one of the other staff after the service, or, or just ask somebody around here. But don't leave without finding out more about him, this King Jesus. Well, I'm gonna close in prayer, and then we're gonna sing another worship song. And I hope that we'll join in with all of creation, with this multitude in heaven of exalting Jesus, giving him true acclaim. I pray this is the loudest that we've sung in here in a while. Amen? All right, well, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this week and what Jesus means to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to exalt him truly, that you would reveal to us any areas of where we're not exalting the true Jesus or what he has truly done, but, but our image of Jesus. Help us to have a right image of him and just be thankful. Particularly this week, I mean, every day of our lives, but particularly this week as we remember what Jesus did for us and how you displayed your great love for us in sending your only son to come and walk amongst us to show us that we are not alone, that you care about our day-to-day -day lives. And then as he rode into Jerusalem, he knew what was coming. If the people didn't, he did. He knew that cross was coming and it, Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Lord, he joyfully paid for my sin. Help me to think about that this week. Help me to exalt Jesus this week. Help us all to sing his praises here this morning. Our King, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.